Welcome to What They Never Told Us, the podcast where we explore our own personal journeys in the hopes to give you some insight into your own narrative. I'm your host, Sasha, licensed mental health counselor. And I'm your host, Crystal, licensed social worker. Yes, we are mental health professionals. However, we are not experts on anyone else but ourselves. You are the only expert on you. The information shared or discussed on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. Welcome to another episode. So, not gonna lie, today we're gonna go full blown nerd yep. on y'all. We're gonna My be favorite. talking theories. Yes, like <laughs> Sasha's thriving right now. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, we're definitely, uh, like I said, gonna be going full nerd. We're gonna be talking about developmental stages. So, we're gonna be taking you back to Psych 101 or 1000, whatever the hell your school calls. <laughs> intro to psych before we even get into it because we're gonna be diving deep getting a lot of good information um but you know we got to do our check-ins first so sasha how are you doing today Ooh, that's a good question i have a lot to say uh so i that's a good question like we don't do this every week uh <laughs> i i uh i am moving so I mentioned that I'm move, in the process of moving. I'm I'm officially moving this this week, and yo, when I say I am exhausted, I am absolutely exhausted, like physically, because I'm moving by like basically by myself. Like I'm the one. I'm pretty strong. I'm picking stuff up. I'm putting things apart. I'm the one putting the boxes up, and I'm moving from the an apartment that is in my mother's house. And the emotional stuff that has been coming up for me is ridiculous. Like, yo, when you're in something, it's so hard to see how that environment is affecting you. But then once you start that process of ending it and, you know, you go through the sadness or whatever it is that comes up for you. So for me, it's a little sad because I feel like I'm abandoning my mom, which is crazy uh, to say that at my age. But it's real because uh, family dynamics are real. And so many other things are coming up for me. So like... Not only am I physically exhausted, but I'm like emotionally drained as well. And I am so looking forward to just kind of being in a new space, being apart, and that's it. So, and summer, summer's like right here. So I'm just super excited. But uh, that's a lot to experience at once. But how are you doing, Boo? Yeah. No, I guess while you were talking, it reminded me of my moving experience. Because when I first moved out, um, I was afraid because I was like, if I move out, I don't want to have to go back because like <laughs> then you like that I was like oh my god I can't like I can never go back like at this point and literally the day that I moved my mom and like my sister went to Ikea so that they could start buying furniture so that she could have my room so it was like wow I, think, and I was like there's not even room for me to go back um, <laughs> which was fucked up in its own way but I guess whatever yeah my the first move that I did was to Brooklyn um and I stayed like I moved three train stops away but I was still in the same neighborhood and it was a nice separation but it was still like I was still in the area also my godmother lived one house over she was you know not nosy or anything like that um but it was still very I was still very aware that she was right there because you know like physically like I wasn't very far and it wasn't until I moved to Harlem that I really felt like a sense of relief Mm. to have finally got because I was like I'm out of Brooklyn I'm out of this neighborhood like I'm over <laughs> an hour train right away it felt like a completely different space because I had grown up in Sunset Park so I, I felt like it was a new stage of my life so hopefully you have a similar yeah. experience as far as my check-in goes I sound very chipper and very like happy but I I will say I I've been I've been struggling a lot I think in the last check-in I might have said that, you know, just feeling very unmotivated. I had a a therapy session this week that really, like, kind of threw me for a loop. And I feel like I'm still emotionally recovering from that that session because I think it brought up so much in me that there was a point where I was like, do I really want to do this? Like, this is, mm. I don't know, the just the shit that came up. I was like, I just want to give up. Like, what, what's the point? So I just feel like I've been dealing with the emotions that have come up from what 
has been brought up in therapy, but also then like, how do I kind of keep myself afloat? Because therapy is just one part of my life right now. Like I have work, I have this podcast, I have other things going on. So just trying to keep myself afloat in more ways than one. Um, so that's, that's been a struggle, but I'm, I'll figure it out. I'm sure. I, uh, I always talk about doing the work and I always get like excited, like, Oh my God, you're doing the work. But (laughs) this is the, this is also what I I think comes up for me when I speak of doing the work that, yo, am I going to continue this? And I just want to point out how proud I am of you. Cause I, I think that when you don't have that experience of being in therapy and you don't know what we're talking about per se, it it can feel so separate from you. And it's like, oh, what's the big deal? You're just exploring yourself. But when you're in it, uh, it is heavy and it's real. And the fact that you're holding all of that and all of that in regards to your therapy and then more with your regular life. And I say your regular life because you have to kind of, you know, it's a little performative, right? You got to come out. You got to show out. You have to do things for other people. And I, I I think that that process is exhausting and I'm really proud of you. I'm like so proud of you. Thank you. Thank you. I'll try to remember or come back to the recording (laughs) (laughs) to like keep going. Like (laughs) just give me a call. Yeah. Yeah. So like I said, Psych 101 today, Uh, we're talking about developmental stages. Developmental stages were developed by Eric Erickson, a German-American psychologist best known for his famous theory of psychosocial development, which is developmental stages, and the concept of the identity crisis, which, sir, why are you coming for me? Like, for real. <laughs> uh, his theories marked an important shift in thinking on personality because instead of focusing simply on like early childhood events and what happened to you as a kid, um, his psychosocial theory looks at how social influences contribute to the to our personalities throughout our lifespan, which is right on par with what we do here like hello the they Mm -hmm. in our podcast title is who he's talking about that influences who we are and i this is not at all relevant to the conversation today but i found it very interesting that he died in 1994 and i thought like eric erickson was like from the 1800s i don't know why like (laughs) i thought he was like ancient i was like sir you were alive when i was alive like we were alive at the same time uh so yeah (laughs) You know, I get why you point that out, but it it's important to note the relevance of his theory to our modern day world. Right. Like, so I think Mm -hmm. that that proves that point. Right. He he was alive when we were alive. And that's why we're choosing to discuss his developmental theory as opposed to other people's. Right. Who make like Freud is outdated Mm -hmm. and Freud is a little, I don't know, complex. So. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Well, speaking of (laughs) Freud, so Erickson's work was influenced by Sigmund Freud. Erickson even worked with Freud's wife, Anna, who gave him therapy for years, which I learned. I was like, yo, this man, like, I gotta, like, (laughs) keep diving deep, of course. (laughs) Y'all probably like, I don't give a shit. So, um, (laughs) yes, Freud developed the psychosexual stages of development, which were explained through sexual pleasure and drive on a person's mind. So, I, 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 Freud is very controversial, like, if you're in in psychology. And then Erickson focused, uh, like I said, on the role of culture and society and the conflicts that can take place within the individual. So Freud's stages of psychosexual development really ended with period, a stage of like puberty to the end of life. And he didn't really like expand upon that. So Erickson, when he developed his stages, um, he expanded later in life mm. because he had the understanding that we never stop developing as humans. And there's a lot more nuance that needs to be explored between puberty and like end of life. That's a that's more than half of your life that Freud kind of like missed out on. Yep. So two things. When discussing developmental phases, I just want everybody to remember that these are theories, right? And they're theories because it it's this is this is not something set in stone. This is not actual, you know, data driven. I mean, one could argue, but this is where the nerd in me comes out. But it's not concrete is what I'm trying to say. Right. Uh, and everyone's path is different. But that's actually why I like Erickson, because 
the way we're presenting the information is linear. Like it's like very like A to Z, but our life experiences of recovery in regards to like what we've missed out and in things that we have to go back and undo, that's not linear because guess what? Life is, life is just a hot mess and it's everywhere. Uh, <laughs> so it's also really important to note that both Crystal and I believe that these developments cannot happen in an individual without a healthy environment fostering the growth. So since environment plays a big role in our healthy development, a lot of people will not have the opportunity to fully solidify in certain stages. So please don't go feeling bad if you're like, damn, I didn't get that. What's wrong with me? No, there's nothing wrong with you. You have another opportunity. We're just pointing, you know, this is just to to have you look back, right? So since you didn't have that opportunity in certain stages, you know, obviously life goes on and you continue to grow and develop. Um, even if you haven't fully hit that marker of, of one developmental phase. So this means that, you know, you're going to have some voids in certain developmental stages and it is a little limiting and it does continue on into adulthood, right? So for example, let's pretend you're in grade school and you didn't get the proper education for math and the proper help and the proper tutoring and you you pass with a 65, right? Then you go into junior high and then math becomes a little more difficult and the knowledge you lack will inevitably hold you back, or you kind of continue on this 65, just barely passing grade into high school, and you make it through high school, right? Like, you're like, yeah, I got it. All right, I can get by without math. And then you go to college, and then they, they throw a calculus class at you, and then you're like, yo, what the fuck is going on? Because that, has, that was my experience in math class, 100%. Like, <laughs> it took me three times to pass math in college, and it was just pre-cal. And I, I barely made it with a D. Barely. Um, so I don't know why. I think she felt bad for me. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that example is actually really similar to what happens when you don't fully understand yourself at certain stages in your life. So, like you can get by with what you know until you can't and then you get stuck. So that's what we mean when we say stuck in a developmental phase. You not necessarily, it doesn't necessarily mean you stopped growing. It just means that there's something that you have to go back and tend to. And like kind of like that math class, like you need a little more attention. You need maybe like a side tutor. You need actual like you need that base work to understand how to move on to the next level so you can understand something like calculus. Right. So that's what we're referring to. So I actually think this is why it's important to look back and reflect and understand your past and let this episode be a guide to you so you can understand your external and internal worlds at the different times of your life that we're going to be discussing. Yes, absolutely. And <laughs> uh, I loved your example of pre-cal and like math. I definitely would have been uh, <laughs> the SpongeBob, you know the SpongeBob mean? Like, I am a head out. If I would have yes. <laughs> pre-cal, I'm going to head out. We just going to forget this degree. Uh, <laughs> So yeah, so so Sasha explained how she, I guess, sees the developmental stages. And to give, I guess, another analogy, basically the stages of development can be seen through the metaphor of like building a house. You start building a house by preparing the construction site, you pour your foundation, you build the frame, you get the plumbing, the insulation, the drywall, right? Until you have a complete home. So Erickson assumes that a crisis occurs at each stage of development. And you'll kind of understand that better as we talk about the titles of each stage. These crises involve the attempt to resolve the psychosocial needs of the individual versus what are the needs of the society. So according to his theory, successful completion of one stage results in a healthy personality and the acquisition of some basic virtues. And we'll talk about those virtues as we get through each stage. But these virtues are basically character strengths, which are used to resolve crises in the subsequent stages. So failure to complete a stage can result in a reducibility to complete the further stages, which goes back to Sasha's point about like once you get to pre-calc in, in college, <laughs> you're screwed if you didn't learn it, if you didn't learn basic math before then. And if a stage is not successfully completed, it can result in an unhealthy sense of self. So if we go back to the house, like each part of the build is critical to the structure and durability of the home. If any one step is missing, incomplete, or done half-assed, because you got that contractor off of Craigslist, uh, you, <laughs> you can, of course, continue to build, but the home isn't going to be sturdy, and you're going to have a lot of issues with it, 
in the metaphor of the house, you can always go back and repair the house. You can always do work on that house, but it's going to take time and it's going to be challenging. Whenever your home is being like repaired, it's not fun. Which I just want to point out real, real quick is that that's exactly what Crystal and I are doing and being transparent about right now that's why we're just always exhausted because like we're trying to rebuild different parts of our house and still maintain the outer structure right or we're still trying to figure out why the hell pre-calculus like i feel like there's not a lot of math in that shit but anyways yeah yeah. (laughs) (laughs) um but the only reason i i I brought up the example of the house is just because that's how i ground my understanding so i'm going to be reviewing the first few stages um and wanted to give that example so you can follow along with me as i as i go through it so the first stage of development is trust versus mistrust and this happens in infancy in zero to one and a half years of life at this point when you're born you're kind of really trying to develop is the world a safe place or is it full of unpredictable events and accidents waiting to happen right when you're an infant you're uncertain about the world around you like you don't like this is your first time here like you were in your little bubble you were protected you were you know safe and then all of a sudden you enter to this world you know you can't do anything you can't feed yourself you can't clothe yourself any of these things right so infants look towards their primary caregiver for stability and care if the infant receives care that is consistent predictable and reliable they will develop a sense of trust um, which carries them into other stages of their life but also other relationships and they'll be able to feel secure even when they're faced with a threat of some sort Mm. and the threat doesn't necessarily mean a physical threat but even like an emotional threat and this is the stage in life where attachment is formed and i know um we talk a lot about attachment i promise we're gonna definitely get into it very very soon so you can understand fully what attachment means and then the success in this stage will lead to the virtue of hope. So when an infant is able to develop a sense of trust, they have hope that when a crisis arrives, that there is a possibility that other people will be there as a source of support and care and help them through that crisis. But if they do not successfully get through this stage and they don't develop hope, it leads to the development of fear. And I, and I want to say that crisis in this stage isn't what we think of when we get older. Like here, crisis is basic needs, like being fed, changed, soothed, like physically being taken care of, being held and being nurtured, right? So like these are the things that an infant sees as the crisis because the, the infant don't know about climate change. He ain't worried about that. <laughs> like- <laughs> <laughs> Yo, but 100%. And it just to kind of point out like that when you're a baby, we are completely dependent Mm-hmm. Not, there's no autonomy whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Like, we are completely dependent on our parents, whoever's taking care of, of us. Right, exactly. If, for whatever reason, the infant receives care that's harsh, inconsistent, unpredictable, unreliable, then they're just going to develop mistrust and they're not going to have confidence um, in the world around them or their ability to successfully get through life earlier. And I know that this seems... Like, well, they're a baby. Like, they don't, you know, like, you don't remember anything from from that stage Mm -hmm. in your life unless you see a video of you or anything like that. But trust that children, from the second they're born, they're absorbing everything around them and it's influencing everything for them. So if the child doesn't have a sense of trust, this can result in anxiety, heightened insecurities, and a feeling that the world isn't safe. So just really quickly, I did, while I was kind of like writing all of this down, remembered the study of children in Romanian orphanages back in the early 1990s. So after the fall of the Soviet Union, there was a lot of orphanages in Romania that were established. In these orphanages, the babies laid in their cribs all day, except when they were being fed, diapered, or bathe, which was all on a set schedule. So it wasn't even like, when does the child need to be fed? When does the child need to be bathed? Because all children are different, right? Um, uh, they just did it on a set schedule. They're like, okay, like at one thirty, we're going to change them, even if they had been soiled since earlier in the day. Aww. They weren't rocked 
or sung to. Many many of the children, like when observed um, by psychologists, would stare at their own hands to get some sort of stimulation from the world oh, around them. That's killing me. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really it's this is like terribly tragic um what happened to these kids um so dr nicholas fox along with some of his colleagues decided to do a study on these children to understand a little bit more about what infants and children need and he followed these children for 14 years to see the effects of attachment and neglect on them because really they were being neglected at this orphanage even though they were getting their basic needs met um, in terms of being changed and fed, there was no, you know, emotional care or stimulation that they were being given. Just because their basic needs were being met, their needs specific to them were not being met. And going back mm-hmm. to what you said about, you know, not remembering, yeah, your brain, the neurons haven't connected to remember. However, your nervous system remembers, right? Like if you think, if you can think of, if you think muscle memory is real, our bodies remember more so than our brains in regards to the access to our memories. So I think that we definitely remember it, whether it's a visceral experience or whether we can actually access it in, in our like conscious mind. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And yeah, like we said, attachment is being formed at this time. So they're like, oh, the world is not a safe place for them. So yep. that's what they're going to carry with them. But anyways, Dr. Nicholas Fox and his colleagues launched their project in 2000 and began assessing 136 children who had been living in institutions since birth. So they randomly assigned half of the children to move into Romanian foster homes where the researchers recruited them, like the the people who were going to be fostering these children, and assisted them financially. The other half remained in the orphanage. The children ranged in age from six months to nearly three years old, with an average age of about 22 months. They also had a control group of children who lived with their like caregivers, their primary parents. When you, when, whenever you have like a science experiment, right, you need a control group and then you need their experimental group so that you can compare. So these children were like the control group. The study showed many profound problems with the children who had been born into neglect, basically the children born into the orphanages. Institutionalized children had delays in cognitive function, which is their brain, motor development, their ability to like move and language. They showed deficits in social emotional behaviors and experienced more psychiatric disorders. They also showed changes in patterns of electrical activity in the brain. The children moved into foster care fared a lot better. These children showed improvements in language, their IQ, and social emotional functioning. They were able to perform secure attachment relationships with their caregivers and made dramatic gains in their abilities to express emotion. Even though the foster care group of kids produced notable improvements, they still lagged behind the children in the control group, which was the children who were with their primary caregivers from birth. And some of the foster children fared better than others if they were removed from the institution, if they were younger than two years old. And the reason why Dr. Fox and colleagues believe that is, is because there's a bit of plasticity in the brain that happens in those first early years. So basically what they assessed was that children moved before the age of two out of the Romanian foster homes, even though they had experienced a little bit of neglect, they still had the ability to recover fully from it as opposed to the children who were moved after two years once the brain had kind of began to settle in in certain critical areas. It just goes to show how important successful completion uh, of this stage of having a sense of trust is to to children yeah I also think that shows how important we are to each other as Mm -hmm. human beings that's really good proof that like we need each other literally or else we're Mm -hmm. not going to develop into functioning beings absolutely so the second stage is autonomy versus shame and doubt and this is Pretty much early childhood toddlers, like one and a half years to three years old. At this stage, children begin to assert their independence. They'll walk away from their mom. And, you know, like we said in earlier episodes, there's a lot of emphasis on the mother in psychology, which (laughs) is problematic. But I'm just going based off what the research, the textbooks say. 
at this point, you know, children, they're picking up which toys they want to play with. They're making choices about what they want to wear, what they want to eat, etc. So at this point, stage the child is discovering that they have skills and abilities and they begin to grow a sense of independence and autonomy right because they were fully dependent on their caregiver for those first that first year and a half and now they're like oh I can walk I can go grab that I can play with this and I don't need anybody to help me I mean they need still still need a lot of help but in their little minds they don't think they need help uh yeah (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this is why toddlers be interesting as hell. They're so cute. Yeah. But anyways. Yeah, um, but they're mad annoying. They're OD annoying with that. I want to do it by myself. And it's like, you cannot. But okay, you could try because I want to be a, a healthy attachment figure for you. Caregiver. <laughs> you just gotta you just gotta let them struggle. But I mean that is part of the stage. At this point, it's critical for parents to allow the children to explore the limits of their abilities while at the same time protecting the child so that constant failure is avoided um so back to what you were literally just saying sasha the child is like i want to put on my shoes you have mm-hmm. you ever seen a toddler put on shoes they never get the right shoe on the right foot they put the left like, on the right yeah exactly yes <laughs> all the time all the time right but at this stage a good example of what would be healthiest for the child is to still let them put on their shoes but maybe you give them one shoe at a time and kind of direct them which foot to put it on and let them put on the shoe themselves right so they're like oh I can put on my shoes but you're also helping them to not put the shoe on the wrong foot so Mm -hmm. that they start to believe like I can do this on my own even though you're really the one helping them to get on the right foot Um, but they don't need to know that (laughs) so the aim here is self-control without a loss of self-esteem because when they put on that shoe they feel very accomplished like that's a big deal to them that they were able to do that for themselves success in this stage will lead to the virtue of will so if children in this stage are encouraged and supported in their increased independence they become more confident and secure in their ability to survive in the world On the other hand, if a child is criticized, overly controlled, or not given the opportunity to assert themselves and kind of do things on their own, they begin to feel inadequate and they become overly dependent on other people and they'll lack self-esteem and feel shame and doubt in their own abilities. So if they can't successfully do anything, they just start to feel very shameful about their inability to do anything. Because what does that mean about them as a person? And even though they're they're not thinking about that as clearly as I am now, but like these feelings start to develop as early as one and a half to three years. Yeah, it reminds me, it it goes back to this theme of trust, right? Like, okay, I can, I trust my caregiver. Can I trust myself to move in this world? And can Mm -hmm. I trust the world outside that caregiver, right? So it, this is how they flow into each other, the different stages. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for making that connection. So stage three is initiative versus guilt, and this is their play age. So this is three to five, three to five years. So around this age, children assert themselves more, even more frequently than before, and they're rapidly developing. You you see kids and you're like, my goodness, like, how do they know all of this? Like, where did they get all of this knowledge and information and personality During this period in life, the child is interacting with a lot of other children, whether it's at preschool, and it's all about play. And it gives children basically the opportunity to to explore their interpersonal skills through initiating activities and interacting with others. So this is a stage where they make up games. They might go to the park and ask another child to play with them. And it basically gives them a sense of initiative. They can start something, like they can have an idea and they begin to explore executing it. And they start to feel a little bit more secure in their ability to lead others and make decisions for themselves. If the child is not nurtured in a way that they can develop this, um, if they're given a lot of criticism or their behavior is controlled, overly controlled, children develop a sense of guilt because they start to feel like a nuisance, like they're a pest, like they're annoying other people, and they will become more like followers and they won't feel confident in their ability to initiate any activities or anything for themselves. It's a challenging stage because they're really cute. They're mad annoying because they ask yeah. mad questions um, because they're always wanting to learn things, right? Um, so if the parent 
or the caregiver treats the child like questions or their thirst for knowledge or their desire to want to, you know, start initiating activities as like a nuisance or just annoying, they can potentially embarrass the child or make them feel bad, like what they're doing is bad, um, and they'll start to feel guilt for for being annoying. Yeah, and I know that sounds like weird, like they're feeling guilty uh-uh. for being annoying, but it's it's true. That is not weird because when you were discussing what happens when you don't have, um, when when you get into that guilt phase, yo, I was triggered because everything mm. I do. And like, and obviously I logically understand that. I think this phase in my life, something went wrong, to be quite honest with you, because I have so much fucking guilt for the weirdest reasons. And I swear to this day still that I'm, I'm overbearing. I'm like, I will ask you a thousand times, is it okay that I'm next to you when literally you invited me to be next to you? But I'm like, are you sure it's okay? Because I never want to feel guilty. And like, I feel guilt for any reason. And that's something that I definitely struggle with. So stage three, I know something definitely went wrong <laughs> girl when i when i read the first stage the first few sentences i was like oh this is where attachment happened like <laughs> we went left from the beginning okay <laughs> yeah yeah i get that so so i totally get you so i guess a, a good example of a way to i guess navigate the stage successfully like for children is you know like let's say they're asking you a, a bunch of questions you know, you can say something like to the effect, if you're like a caregiver, I don't have the answer to that question right now. Can we check the iPad later mm. and do some research? Even using it as an opportunity to, well, you want to make sure that you have the time to do it, right? Like you're like, I don't want to do this shit right now. So bye. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, you give them the opportunity to ex- work with them to explore it later. If you're busy, you can say, like, I'm working on a project right now. Can we play after dinner? You can set those boundaries with them um, in terms of, like, time, but you don't ever want to completely ignore what their needs are. And, of course, some guilt is necessary in this stage of life. So I don't want to think that, like, the child can never feel guilty or, like, they can never, you know, establish a sense of mistrust in any phase of their life. It's not that the child can't delete a little bit of that negative emotion. It's just that you don't want to be overbearing with it. Um, And in this stage, some guilt is necessary because that's how the child learns to exercise self-control and have a conscience a little bit about like others around them. But on the other hand, too much guilt can make them slow to interact with others and can get in the way of their creativity. So success in this stage will lead to the virtue of purpose. So like, what is their purpose and how can they exercise that? Stage four is industry versus inferiority. And this is school age, which this is five to 12 years. And children at this stage are learning to read, write, do math, learn science. Or in Sasha's case, they're not really learning to do math very successfully, but they're trying it. Uh, I tried. I really tried. (laughs) And at this stage, teachers enter the picture, right? You know, an additional role model or huge source of knowledge and development in these stages of their life. And they also develop friendships. So friend groups are, are important during this time because they help feed the child's self-esteem. They do feel the need to win approval by demonstrating specific competencies that are valued by society and by their friends to develop a sense of pride in their accomplishment. So if they if they try to initiate things and try to do things and they're restricted by their parents or the teacher, then the child begins to feel inferior, doubting their own abilities, and they may not reach their full potential because they decide to stop interacting in the ways that would be helpful for their development and if the child can't develop a skill that feels important to them like maybe being athletic or being good at video games they may develop a sense of inferiority like they feel inferior to the other children like they're not good enough some failure at this stage like i said before is necessary so that they can develop modesty right so like you don't want to (laughs) be that super cocky ass kid 
oh, yes. or you don't want them to be the super cocky kid. Um, but there needs to be a balance between competence and modesty. Let's say they might not get the lead role in the recital, but you can encourage them that with practice, they can get the role later. So this stage leads to the virtue of competence. So children want to feel like they're able to successfully do things in life. I want to point out that, yes, it's good to support them and support them to try and do things on their own. But I I think that, and this happened with me, I think that a lot of parents and teachers, they offer support and encouragement when it equates to like being high performing. And I think that that's a slippery slope for the child equating high performance as acceptance and love. And then if I'm not performing, I'm not loved, right? Because full transparency, that is my issue because uh, I feel like I have to perform all the time. So like, I think that this is a stage where the, the child begins to notice like there's a difference. You know, obviously, like Crystal said, it's not like where they're sitting around like, hmm, what's conditional versus unconditional love? But, you know, we're, right. we're receiving these messages and there is a difference between unconditional love. And that's when you do mess up and when you're not high performing and that you still get that support and encouragement versus when it's conditional. And it's like, you could have done better. How come, you know, I brought home an 85 one time and it was like, why didn't you get the 95? I'll remember that. Mm. And these are the things you don't forget. There is a huge problem with this because we've been socialized to feel that there's like a script on how you do things well. And mm-hmm. I think that people are talented and skilled in different ways. And when you don't fit that standard model, especially within elementary school, you start feeling like there's something wrong with you. Like as if you don't deserve support and encouragement almost. It's not just the individuals, but I also think society does it, especially with these standards that we we have for kids. That's absolutely true. I love the way that you summarize that or or put it into real life perspective, because I think that's also something that we're seeing a lot with children because of like standardized tests and things like that, too, mm-hmm. because everyone is being held to the same standard when not everyone has the same skills or abilities or resources. Yeah, it's it, it's hard to find the balance. It's really difficult. So I also want to say to anyone who's a parent, this isn't easy. Like it isn't easy yeah. to, to find that balance with children. Ooh, speaking of not easy, we are getting into the not easy stage of uh, Erickson's uh, theory. <laughs> it's identity versus role confusion. And it's what Erickson believed is our primary psychosocial task, right? So, And it's because we are social beings. So up until this point, we have been practicing and getting these skills to be social beings. And now we're starting to internalize that. From 12 to 18 years old, this is the stage when adolescents begin to explore their independence and develop a, a sense of self. So essentially the question, the overarching question is, who am I? Identity may seem specific uh, to the individual and the person themselves, but the reality is that we form our own sense of self through our interactions with our world. So at this point in time is when your ego begins to fully form and solidify, depending on if you've learned how to trust the world, trust yourself, feel like uh, your existence has purpose and you're competent to do what you put your mind to, you know, all the stages we just spoke about, your sense of identity will directly be affected by these experiences. So you begin to take what you've learned, you put those building blocks in a structure to form who you are and how you see yourself. But because you're still developing, you're still trying stuff on, right? So like if you remember when you were a teenager, the styles you went through, the partners you went through, the friends you went through, right? Like y'all, like I'm so happy that social media was not a thing when I was in high school. (laughs) I would die if people saw me when I was in high school. Like I would still be embarrassed for that girl. But I would understand that this is just what teenagers do, right? We're trying on different identities. And that's also why teenagers seem so unpredictable and impulsive because they're just trying to figure out what suits them best because they're still confused. Just it, it meant like nothing fits them well in the beginning. So no, I would also like to add that at this point in time, like they're also going through puberty. Their hormones are ranging. Their bodies are changing. They start to maybe like feel attraction to whoever they feel attracted to. This is also a difficult stage because it's critical in their identity development. But you also have to think about biologically all of the things that are changing for them. Being a teenager 
was hard. It's probably one of the most difficult um, stages in life because you're very impulsive, because your body is changing, because you're trying to develop who you are, because your parents are also going through or your caregivers are also going through a transition because you were very dependent and reliant on them. You love talking to them and spending time with them. And now you're just like, skirt, like you got to go over there. Like I Mm -hmm. want to go off and I want to explore and you're navigating rules. It's a lot, yo. This is triggering for me. (laughs) It is a lot though, because it's like, yo, like, and you know what triggered me? The whole external world, right? Like your parents and your family, they're they're still influencing you, but you don't want them Mm -hmm. to, right? And then like, how much Mm -hmm. do you go to them? How much, you know, so... And the reality is that as parents during this stage, you're having your own feelings, but what you really should be doing is encouraging and reinforcing and accepting your teen to find a stronger sense of self in their present and for their future. If you're noticing that your child is emo one day, I don't know, that just came out. And then super bright colors the next, like, yo, be like, interesting. What made you do that? As opposed to, oh, what you can never decide on one thing. And ooh, my mom's voice just came out. Uh <laughs> so you know aside from the parents like what does your what does forming your identity look like so those who are successful in figuring out what they like dislike and what they own as their sense of self has have quote-unquote resolved the crises that erickson constantly refers to they commit to a particular identity which helps in choosing their social circles their style and their possible career choices uh the virtue for this stage is fidelity which helps you relate to others safely and create genuine relationships. So this is a very pivotal stage in development. When you are trying on so many different styles to find what you like, it's not fully yours. You don't fully feel comfortable. But when you finally feel comfortable, you'll start to feel good in your choices and in the people you begin to keep around you. This could be a little confusing because there's stages within stages. Uh, So there Mm -hmm. are the stages of identity development that fit into this particular stage of life. There's five stages and it starts off with conformity. And then that's when you identify with the dominant culture and the assumed stereotypes, right? So like Mm. children have a need to fit in, but at some point they begin to question the dominant culture and they want to build interest in whatever it is that's interesting to them. Then they start to be like, well, everyone is into this, but I like this. So then they they enter into the resistance stage, which is when they withdraw a little bit from the dominant culture and begin to develop their own sense of identity. And as they're in that resistance phase, they go into introspection, which is where they refocus more energy on their personal identity. And then they integrate that identity into different spaces. So like at first they were resistant and now they're kind of really beginning to own it and explore what it feels like to take that into different areas of their life. And then the last stage is awareness where they can identify as whatever, you know, identity they have chosen for themselves and they feel very comfortable in owning that in all spaces, whether it's accepted or not. So of course this is helpful and this is can be linear if there's a successful completion of the stages. But if there's not, it can lead to a lot of like confusion and internal conflict for for the teenager or even for the adult shit. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Because I mean the reality is that these stages, a the way Erickson presents it is like you get identity formation or you're confused. And yeah, but there, we don't fluctuate between 100% all I, of like being all in and informing our identity or 100% being confused. A lot of us teeter in this go back and forth. I think this is why it gets confusing for us because we're just like, well, sometimes I feel good and then sometimes I feel mad confused, right? So it, it it's really complex when you don't form your identity and you're confused this is when you weren't allowed to explore and try on different identities. So I can just imagine a really punitive parent. You're still unsure of what you like or who you are because you haven't had the opportunity to figure out what suits you, which is where your environment plays a huge role because your parent may not, but your school and the people in the school may help you find that sense of identity. Uh, According to him, uh, these people become quote unquote drifters. They don't feel a sense of cohesiveness, like things don't make sense to them. And they're just like straight up confused about what their role in life is. So going back to what Crystal said, yes, it could be linear, 
But I think that the reality for most of us, our experience is that we kind of like oscillate between both, you know, the good formation of, let's say, in this fate, in this stage of having a good identity and or being confused. And it can be set off by different events. Like, let's say you have a traumatic event. It might bring you back to another phase of your life where it wasn't it wasn't structured in a strong manner. Like, so going back to that reference of Crystal's house, right? Like, so then you have to rebuild off of that. So I think that these are things that we we consistently go back to as we have more experiences. What I really like about Erickson's model is uh, this next stage, which is intimacy versus isolation, which happens literally from 19 to 40 years old. So there's new research that suggests that identity development goes well into early adulthood. So I, I would I would actually argue this. I think it's more relevant to today's society to say that we are still exploring our identity up until 24, 25. At least that's how long it took me to figure shit out. I would be interested to see how every generation shifts because I yep. feel like with Gen Z, um, they really do have yeah, I'm sure that they have they have a lot of conflicts as a generation, of course. Like every generation, I'm not trying to like shit on Gen Z. Please don't let them come after me because they make fun of people and it be stinging. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I I would say like it also depends on the generation because I feel like Gen Z is a lot more open to a lot of different types of identities. It kind of goes back to the they, like the society, like what's acceptable at the time. And I think that now being different and owning who you are is a little bit more acceptable. Of course, it depends also like who's in your home, what neighborhoods you live in and things like that. And I do think that identity development like you said, goes into adulthood. I feel like when I think about the metaphor of the house, it's like now, you know, like the house is built, whether it's sturdy or not, it's built. Yep. And now you're decorating, right? Now you're buying curtains, you're painting mm. the walls, you're getting like your furniture. You can always change the decor of your house. And I feel like that's um, what, how I think about identity. Like this may fit now. And then as you go through different life experiences, you're like, actually, I want to switch that up a little bit. Yeah. Not, and I love that because you could always change the decor of the house. Right. But you could always go back and renovate if you really mm -hmm. want to, because now you're living in this house and it's yours. Right. So like the this stage until the last stage, it is regarding our adulthood. But I actually think that and I'm not the first one to feel this way. I, I think that Erickson's model of state like so this intimacy versus isolation revisits the stages that we've experienced as children just more in an in an independent way. In intimacy versus isolation, we are forming intimate and loving relationships with other people, uh, therefore feeling fulfilled in our relationships. If you struggle, you, it can lead you to being lonely. So if you really analyze it, you're getting another opportunity to play out what you learned in trust versus mistrust. But the difference is you're not fully dependent on somebody. Now you're in, independent and you have more autonomy over your decisions, which is why I always remind people of their choice. And this is why I actually like working with young adults and older. I can't work with kids because that's really dependent on the parents and I don't feel like I could do much. So depending on what you've learned at this point and if you're starting to become aware of how you're interacting with your world, Maybe you didn't create intimate relationships in the past and maybe there are things that are lacking in you, but you can build, you can slowly build to start creating this, this world that you do desire, right? Also, intimacy isn't just with a sexual partner. Intimacy means being vulnerable, uh, being close, having honesty and love along with the expression of love. If, you're, if you find you're one of these people who are having issues with intimacy, and you're like, oh, whatever, I'll just leave it like that. I actually just want to point out the benefits of intimacy, close romantic relationships, meaningful connections, enduring connections, positive relationships will keep you healthy, not just emotionally, but physically. If you feel like you're not at the point of intimacy that you want to reach, um, you're not a lost cause, so to speak, because as I as Crystal and I keep preaching, you can definitely go back, renovate that house, decorate it, however it is that you want. But it is going to take a little bit of time. I feel like a lot of people may be confused in this stage because going back to our external world, the social world that we get conditioned in, uh, we're kind of, at least from my experience, we're taught to find and experience intimacy in the quote unquote wrong way. And what I mean by that is like, it's a very transactional thing. And like, you give me this, I give you that. And I have friends and now I post them on my IG and this, look, I, it may lead you to feeling 
a bit of a void, that sign in you that it's like, okay, maybe you should explore these things. So what does intimacy really require from you? Uh, sharing parts of yourself, listening to others and being able to support them. I think it's important, just like identity development, to note that this is trial and error and you're not going to get it right on the first time and not and the people you pick may not always be the right people. So you will continuously try on different kinds of relationships, which is why it's important to begin noticing what works and what is healthy for you, right? Like not for other people, but for you. Just because one relationship resulted in a rejection or left you feeling lonely, it does not mean all relationships will. It's important in this stage to start noticing your your own thresholds. So what I mean by that is if you get to know yourself and recognize that you maybe didn't learn how to fully trust in the previous stages, that's a good sign. You may be more likely to give up on finding intimate relationships and shutting down. This may lead you to believe you'll never find intimacy and feel hopeless, but I actually don't think that that's the case. I think that Crystal and I are proof to the opposite of that. If you can't find intimacy, Eric states that you're going to feel isolation, which is completely the opposite of what I just said. So poor romantic relationships, no deep intimacy, weak social support networks. You're more likely to feel alone you're more likely to feel neglected. You're more likely to feel these negative effects, which, as I pointed out earlier, you're more likely to have physical effects of it, off of this. Things like heart disease, depression, substance use, abuse, stress. Uh, you're more likely to commit suicide. Uh, people who, have, who feel isolated have unhealthier diets. They exercise less. They feel more daytime fatigue, and they have poor sleep. So I actually think this is... A really good reason for you to recognize like, OK, maybe I should work on being uh, on having more intimate relationships, no matter how hard it is. I, I think I relate a lot to this because I think I leaned on the side of isolation um, because my sense of mistrust in the world was so deep, um, not only because of the poor attachment from infancy, but even related to what you said earlier, like I had a traumatic experience in stage four of my life stage four and a little bit of stage five so I think that it mm. made me really lack trust which I love that you related this this stage back to stage one of intimacy versus mistrust and how it's kind of a chance to repeat that stage but in a more independent matter um and I think that's absolutely true and I think that you know when you're when we're thinking about these stages you can absolutely always go back and heal or repeat or kind of work through that stage and keep moving forward but I think you also need to understand the depths of where things went wrong and yep. try to start at the beginning and then kind of work your way back up to the stage that you're at now yeah. I mean, I'm just going to point out again that this is from the age of 19 to 40 years old. So that's it's like some work. Age. Yeah, that's yeah. some work you could be doing. And if you you might as well. I mean, I'm always a big believer. You might as well do the work. So mm -hmm. it, just because you're doing the work, it doesn't mean it's going to work out as fast as you want it to. It's a process. Right. But that's why things like therapy, uh, like this podcast, can be really helpful and useful to you because, yo, you and I, I hate to sound, I hate to say it this way, but you got, you got time. You got time. Mm -hmm. So put the time mm -hmm. in for yourself, right? The second to last stage is generativity versus stagnation. So now we're getting into the phase of life where we are just kind of reflecting on the work we've done. So you've experienced your relationships through building intimacy or not. You contribute back to the world or not. Uh, you know, so like, AKA, like, have you done anything worthy of the world remembering you right like so mm -hmm. you put your mark on this world right and if you have you're going to fall more into the generative the generativity stage I think that this is why the previous stage is just as important as identity development so stage five and six are super important in your life because these are the ones that kind of set you on the path to create what the perspective of your life is and how you see the world so if you don't form a healthy sense of self, you're more likely to fall into stagnation, which causes you to be more self-centered, uh, failure to be involved with others, not taking interest in productivity, no efforts to improve the self, um, placing your concerns above all else. Sounds like a narcissist. Uh, <laughs> your health will be affected, right? So if you fall into the generativity category, your overall quality of life is better. People who fall into the stage, they find more meaning in health-promoting activities. 
positive relationships help them. Uh, they do things like teach, they go out and mentor, they volunteer, they're very social beings. And they have a greater fulfillment towards the end of their life, as opposed to stagnation. Isolation, like as expressed before, can cause a decrease in health as you age, lower quality relationships, and an overall decrease in life satisfaction. You know, at the end of the day, if you if you're wondering like why should I be a better person, it's not just for you. <laughs> it's for everybody else too, because I think we all know those people who fall into the stagnation group where they're just like, oh, life ain't shit, da da da. And they're older, right? Like I I mean, I've seen them in my family, I'm not gonna lie. And I just kind of sit there wondering, like, mm, I don't want to be like that. Like, I want to have, I want to enjoy with people. But I mean, again, again, it's a choice. I believe in choice. The last stage is, uh, it goes into what I'm talking about, which is integrity versus despair. So the main question here is, did I live a meaningful life? And the virtue of this phase is wisdom, right? So I think that death is something that is absolutely guaranteed. However, we don't have to think about it when we're younger because we're so busy with other things, obviously, stage one through seven, if we weren't busy enough with our jobs. Um, <laughs> and when you're actually reaching the end, you're going to start thinking about the end and that's going to cause you to reflect and say, yo, what did I do? So in this stage, Erickson believed that we develop what is known as ego integrity, which is when you feel you've lived a life with purpose and you're content with the outcome. Right. It doesn't mean you made perfect decisions, but or your life is smooth sailing, but it's more about your perspective. So when you've reached, quote unquote, wisdom, you're informed and detached from concern with life itself, even in the face of death. So when reflecting, you're either fulfilled or you feel like you've had a life misspent. You either feel proud of your accomplishments and then for feel a sense of integrity or do not. And if you don't, you fall into despair which you feel like your life has been a waste of time, you have so many regrets, bitterness comes up, and you're more likely to be depressed. Yeah, that's definitely not what I want for myself, like, towards the end of life. So I feel like I'm like, let me start doing this work because yeah. it's going to be real hard <laughs> to reach this final stage. So first and of all, you want to do the work. Yeah, no, but I feel like it's further motivation. <laughs> you know, it is, and, like, just... You don't want to be unhealthy getting older. Yo, that's hard. Your bones, ugh, uh -uh, I don't even want to think about it. Oof, I have a fear. Uh, <laughs> but I will say that I used to volunteer in a nursing home prior to getting into grad school. And I literally saw this phase play out in different people. I remember there was this really, really cute old man who would be pushed around in a wheelchair and he would go telling the world like, oh, my children gave me this iPad and we FaceTime all the time. Super happy. Like any, nothing could have stopped him. And then I would meet people who would just sit there and tell me how depressing their life was, how they're just going to die anyway. And these people were in their 90s already. And you literally see these things play out. And if I have the choice, I want to be like that old man with his iPad. You know, he looked so fulfilled. He looked so full of love. Like you could tell that he felt loved by his children as opposed to the other people I'm talking about. They, my heart hurt for them when I would watch them. So right. yeah, definitely a reason to do the work. This is the end of the stages. So this is the <laughs> end of the And there definitely was uh, a lot of information, but the reason why we wanted to do this is to help you all reflect, to see where were the stages in your life where things maybe didn't go as smoothly, where you weren't able to establish trust, where you weren't able to establish autonomy, you know, your identity, right? So that you can begin to do the work in that particular area of your life? Like, well, what do you need to do in order to resolve these conflicts and move on to the next stage of your life? So I, I don't want you to think yeah. that we were just like trying to do this recording so that the next psych professor doesn't have to teach this lesson <laughs> <laughs> in their class, but it was more so to help you all reflect on what are the areas that maybe you need to do a little bit more work on to become the most fulfilled version of yourself. I totally agree with that. And but I also think that the reason that we did this is because we want to help you recognize your power over these states and how you can get yourself to a place where you actually want to be. Absolutely. Thanks for closing us out. 
So with that said, make sure to follow us on Instagram at Never Told Us Pod. And if you have any questions, comments, want to reflect with us, make sure to also email us at Never Told Us Pod at gmail.com. And make sure to come back next week so we can tell you what they never told us.